Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. So good to be with you. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron. I have the privilege of being a part of the team here at Wellspring. Thank you to all of you who are joining us online or maybe in the basement. Good to have you with us this morning. Um, for today, we're going to be continuing in our ongoing series through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses today of 1 Corinthians, just kind of looking at this letter, what Paul had to say to this ancient church back in the first century of Corinth. Now, for today, before we dive into the text, we're going to break it down line by line, hopefully put it back together, see how it applies to our lives today. What I thought it'd be good to do to start off is actually I'm going to read the entire passage uh, for us, and then we'll uh, break it down as we go along. So why don't you, if you can, read with me from 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have a lawsuit at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, there's a passage for you. There's a lot, lot going on in there, right? Talking about lawsuits, and then at the end, Paul has this whole list of things that he's, again, somewhat upset about. What are we to make of this? Well, what's going on here in this text? Well, let me start by asking just a very simple question. How many of you, you can just kind of think to yourself, how many of you have ever had conflict before? <laughs> just me, right? How many of you have ever had conflict with another follower of Jesus before? right? And I think at this point, right, we're all in the same boat together, right? So we're all starting on common ground here. I think it's a good place to start. Well, when you think about maybe an instance that you've had recently, or maybe not recently before, where you were in some sort of situation where there was conflict, I think oftentimes, and I, I'm fully in this boat as well, that oftentimes when we come across situations where we have conflict, the way that we handle conflict often makes things worse and not better. Right? Have you ever been there before? The way that you respond to a certain situation or a certain conflict, whether that's interpersonally or on a one-on-one -on -one relationship or maybe more broadly, sort of culturally speaking, oftentimes the way we respond to conflict makes things worse and not better. And I think something very similar is happening in 1 Corinthians 6, where there's conflict happening within the church, but the way that the church is responding to this particular conflict is not actually making the situation better, it's making it worse. Let me kind of explain. See, what's happening, at least in the first part of this passage, in 1 Corinthians 6, 
is that there seems to be at least two people, we'll call them just person A and person B to start, where person A has some sort of grievance or problem with person B, and as a result, person A is taking person B to court over it. Now, Paul responds, and from Paul's perspective, this is like totally out of bounds for a follower of Jesus, at least in this particular cultural setting. We'll talk about that here in a second. And for Paul, the way that these two people are handling this conflict is not actually making the situation even any better at all, but is making it, in fact, worse. All right? So that's kind of the, the broad context of what's happening here. Now let's kind of dive into the text line by line and kind of pick this apart and see kind of what's going on here. So starting with, start with me again in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance. Notice Paul says in verse 1, when, not if, right? When you have a grievance. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now it's almost like a hypothetical question here because Paul's getting at here is you are going to have a grievance with someone and just live life for more than two minutes. You're going to have a grievance with someone. And Paul says when you have a grievance, that, that word grievance is actually a technical term for kind of a civil kind of lawsuit or a civil kind of upbringing that you would, you would bring into a court. And what Paul's referring to, what he is somewhat kind of ticked off about to a degree, is how dare you go before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Now this is kind of really important to get at here, some of the cultural context with what Paul is referring to here in first century Corinth. What's happening here is that Paul is clearly upset, but the reason that he's upset is not necessarily because, oh, they're, you know, taking their case to a court or they're using, you know, the, the, the Roman legal system of the time. That's not necessarily the problem. The particular problem in Corinth is that the, the, the Corinth court system was there was particular injustices happening within the courts there in Corinth. Where what we can tell from history is that a lot of what was happening in the court at Corinth was there was favoritism going on on behalf of the rich and those that had more status and more power. And so what Paul is getting at here is why would you take this situation to a setting that isn't actually going to lead to true justice, it's actually going to only make things worse and perpetuate kind of the favoritism that was happening in that culture. Richard Hayes, he has probably one of my favorite commentaries on 1 Corinthians. He says this about the legal court system in Corinth. He says, recent research on the court systems of the Roman Empire has shown that there was a strong systematic bias in favor of higher status litigants. The overwhelming majority of civil cases were brought by the wealthy and powerful against people of lesser status and means. The judges themselves were members of the privileged classes and would ordinarily give preferences to the testimony of their social peers against the testimonies of those of lower rank. All right, so that's kind of some of the important sort of background that's, that's happening here in Corinth. There's another layer, too, to this as well, is that when you look at sort of the archaeology of the city of Corinth and kind of the layout of the city, it seems like the main court in Corinth was right in sort of the public square. It was wide open, open air, kind of anyone could kind of see and participate what was happening when there would be a court case going on. It's not like our modern day kind of courtrooms where kind of just picture your favorite movie, right? Where it's closed doors and there's only you know, an X handful of people that are inside the actual courtroom getting to witness the proceedings. It was kind of more in Corinth, this open air sort of idea. So you could be, you know, picking up your favorite food at the local market and just be kind of strolling around with some friends and, oh, hey, just kind of check in on what were 
the legal proceedings happening of that day. And it was often done, the court system or the court proceedings were often done in this highly sort of rhetorical or very sort of public speaking type way where it was a lot of entertainment that was happening, a lot of show. Like who was the most well-spoken lawyer of the time and who could perhaps talk the most persuasively and who had the most eloquence in their speech would often be kind of, oh, let's go hear that person sort of give their sort of approach or their defense of whatever case it might have been. So there was a little bit of injustice going on and there's a little bit of entertainment and showmanship going on in the system. So that's kind of where Paul is sort of pushing back on why would you be going there as opposed to handling it within the church. But Paul goes on in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now when Paul says saints, especially in his own writing, saints is just another way for Paul to talk about followers of Jesus. That in Christ we are called saints. Don't you know, Paul says, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Now what's Paul talking about here? Well, we don't have time to necessarily turn to a bunch of different passages, but what's clear from the rest of the New Testament, and even in Paul's writings in particular, is that there is this level of, as a follower of Jesus, one day, the Bible says, we will reign with Christ. That we will rule and reign with Christ in the new creation. Paul tells this to Timothy, that if we die with him, we will reign with him. Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, that even right now, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Revelation 22.5 says that we will reign with him forever. So as a follower of Jesus, there is this destiny, if you will, of one day we will reign with Christ forever. And as part of that ruling and reigning, there seems to be this aspect where we participate with Christ in that particular ruling. And in particular, Paul refers to the ruling or the judging of angels, which probably refers to another rabbit hole that we'll kind of sidestep for now ruling over sort of the fallen angels or judging the fallen angels. But the point here in the passage, though, is sort of this argument from the greater to the lesser. Where Paul is saying, if you have this high calling, this high destiny, this high privilege in your life to rule and reign with Christ, how come you can't right now in the here and now handle what Paul calls an everyday matter or a trivial matter? You kind of see the logic that Paul has here? This is your calling. This is your destiny. Why can't you just handle this small little thing right now here in Corinth. You know, this phrase when Paul says at the end of verse 3, matters pertaining to this life. It's actually just one word in the original language. And it's very, just simply, this word that means an everyday matter. Just something that you would come across in your everyday, sort of day-to-day living. It's used actually only one other time in the New Testament in the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus, in sort of one of his more famous teachings about worry and care and anxiety, he says this in Luke 21. But watch, out, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with, and, and this is the same word here, the cares of this life. And so you see that this word that Paul is using, the what Paul is referring to, that is being disputed, that is causing this sort of conflict, is an everyday matter. Just something that you're going to come across in your everyday sort of life. And Paul is saying, as a follower of Jesus... You have this calling, this destiny to rule and reign with Christ in the new creation. So here in the present, it just only makes sense that you would be able to handle these sorts of everyday matters or matters pertaining to this life within the fellowship of followers of Jesus. 
But Paul goes on. I love what he says next in verse 4. So if you have such cases, again, this everyday matters, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Now, pay attention. This is actually, there's a little bit of irony in this next line here from Paul. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Now, if you've been reading through 1 Corinthians up until this point, one of the things that the Corinthians were boasting about in the earlier chapters was this posture of thinking that they were the wise ones and that they were seeking all this wisdom and that they were boasting in how wise they were, they were as people in Corinth. And Paul is saying, isn't there anyone wise among you that can handle this sort of everyday matter? Like, where's the wisdom when you really need it? Where's the wisdom for this sort of trivial everyday matter? But verse 6, Paul goes on, but brother goes against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now again, I think it's important just to clarify what Paul isn't saying. Paul is not saying not to, you know, to just do away with all of the court systems and to do away with all of kind of all the legal system here in Rome. Paul actually at multiple times in his own career as as a follower of Jesus, as an apostle of Jesus, appeals to the Roman court system for his own defense. There's an instance in the book of Acts where Paul is being whipped. He's being beaten. And Paul says, hold on, stop. You can't do that. I'm a Roman citizen. He appeals to Roman law there. There's an instance at the end of the book of Acts where Paul is, he's standing trial. And Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. That he wants to take his case before Caesar. So in Paul's mind, it's not just, he's not totally doing away with the Roman legal system or anything like that. There's something very particular happening in Corinth where there was, again, this injustice that was happening and there was this system that was going on that was not, uh, not actually being fair in the way that these, these proceedings were taking place. So again, there was conflict going on, but it was making the situation worse. Paul remedies that by saying, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather? We're going to hone in on this in a moment here. But why not rather? Basically, he's saying, why not have the posture of Jesus here? Why not allow this moment of conflict to be a moment where you can insert Jesus in the posture that Jesus had? Even when wrong is being done to you, why not insert the posture and the humility of Jesus in that moment as opposed to saying, how can I get mine? How can I assert my rights? How can I assert my level of superiority over someone else? But Paul goes on in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read those, those two verses that, we, that I just read, how many of you had the feeling that Paul all of a sudden is like changing subjects? Like we were talking about like civil court cases and taking people to court, and then all of a sudden he has like this list of things that he's like ticked off about as well. Like what, what happened here? Did Paul like start writing and then took a little break and then 
went about his day and then came back one evening and just forgot what he had just written about and started on like a new tangent or like, what's happening here, right? Well, we have to understand that Paul is a brilliant, brilliant thinker and a brilliant communicator, especially through his writings. Now, what I, what I think what's happening here is it's not just like two separate things where Paul was talking about litigation in a court system and handling conflict here in Corinth, and then he has like this whole list of things over here. These two are actually related. Let me kind of explain what's happening here. At the end of verse 8, Paul describes what's happening between these two people, at least in this court situation, as they're doing wrong. They're wrongdoers, is the word there in verse 8 that Paul uses. But you yourselves wrong or commit wrong and defraud even your own brothers, he says in verse 8. In verse 9, Paul uses that exact same word, but it's translated as unrighteous in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous, but it's the same word, wrongdoers. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So verses 8 and 9, they're linked together. That's the first sort of step here. Does that, that part make sense there? And so what's probably happening here is that imagine you're sort of in Paul's original audience. And you're hearing this letter orally read. And Paul brings up this situation that's happening. We don't fully know the full circumstances behind it. But you're hearing this letter being read, and you're hearing the situation described of person A and person B having this grievance with one another and Paul addressing it. And perhaps you're in the audience, and perhaps you're hearing this, and you're going, oh, well, that doesn't pertain to me, right? You know, Joe and Bob, they got their thing. They got to deal with it. Oh, I can just sit back and check out, right? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm home free here. And I think it's at that very moment, Paul then inserts verses 9 and 10, where he says, don't you know that the wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? That just because you think that this situation between person A and person B is so wrong, and you're like pointing the finger at them, at that very moment, Paul says, but wait a second, we all have brokenness. We all have areas in our life where we do wrong. We all have areas in our life that don't align with the kingdom of God. And so the whole point of verses 9 and 10 is not to just cherry pick one or two things and, and rip them out of the passage and then point them at people and say, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong. The whole point of in context of this passage is to say, the moment you begin pointing the finger out there and saying, oh, look at the wrong that they're doing, Paul would remind us and say, you know what? We all participate in ways that go against the heart and the desire of God. We all have areas in our hearts and in our lives that don't fully line up with God's will and God's design for us. And so maybe you're even thinking as we're reading this passage, what on earth does this situation between person A and person B taking each other to the court have anything to do with even any of the conflict that I have in my own life? Like, I'm not taking someone to court right now, right? This doesn't apply to me. And I think it's at that very moment Paul would want to gently remind us that we have a proclivity and a temptation to want to point the finger and say, oh, they're the ones that are doing wrong. I'm glad someone is getting on them for the problems that they're having in their life. But it's at that very moment Paul would want to step in and say, but hold on a second. Maybe the thing that you're struggling with or the conflict that you have isn't even on the list here in verses 9 and 10. But it's this honest, open invitation to say, you know what? There are areas in my life that have led to conflict. 
And oftentimes the way that I respond to that conflict doesn't make the situation better. It makes it worse. And so I want to kind of double down on this a little bit here and kind of really expand on this idea of of conflict and how God would want to use conflict in our lives. Again, maybe you're not taking someone to court, but as we talked about at the very beginning, we've all faced conflict before, right? We've all had disagreements. We've all had moments where we've had conflict and the way we've often responded to that conflict has made the situation worse and not better. So let me just talk about two things as we get sort of really practical and kind of expand the text into our sort of everyday life. Two things in particular, that how God can use conflict. The first one is God wants to use conflict or can use conflict to reveal Jesus. And I'll explain what that, what that means here in a second. To reveal Jesus. Look again with me at verse 7 in particular. Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You know, I think another very simple way to explain what Paul is saying there, in particular with verse 7, is why not rather show and demonstrate the posture of Jesus in that moment? Why not rather reveal Jesus in the midst of that disagreement? Why, Corinthians, are you instead trying to gain the upper hand and elevate your desires and your position and what you think is your rights over against someone else? Why not rather show the humility and the service of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who you claim to follow, church, who you say that you are a follower of Jesus? Why not in this very moment? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, that is a very hard thing to actually bring in to put into practice, to actually live out, right? I mean, think about it. Maybe just think about some of the own situations that you're going through. But that person really did wrong. That person clearly did something wrong. That person, what that person did to me, what that person said to me, was offensive, was hurtful. And I can think of situations even in my own life right now where it is not easy at all to just simply show the posture of Jesus in any given moment. It's hard. It's hard. You know, I think this is where there's the, the need for a community and counsel and having other people speak into our lives in the different situations that we might be in. Hearing God's voice together, how might we respond in a Christ-like way that doesn't ignore evil? that doesn't ignore injustice, that doesn't ignore the wrongs of this world, but still demonstrates the posture and the humility of Jesus. You know, I think for for me, one of the, the things that has been helpful is to constantly be coming back to the teachings of Jesus and also just passages of Scripture that show and demonstrate the posture that Jesus had when he lived his life. I think of in particular, Philippians chapter 2 has been this passage that has been constantly just been in the back of my mind in these moments where there's been conflict or there's been disagreement or any sort of kind of negative experience, where Philippians chapter 2 is this beautiful passage where Paul talks about how Jesus, who had all of the authority, all of the power, all of the status, Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 5 and following that Paul, or that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or to be attained, but laid aside his rights, laid aside his divine privileges, humbled himself, Becoming a man, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, who is high in the heavenly places, the eternal Son of God, lowers himself 
on behalf of others, comes to us to serve and to bless and to forgive and to enter into our brokenness and our pain. And that mindset, Paul says in Philippians 2, that he calls the church in Philippi to have this mindset, to have this way of thinking, the Jesus posture, where I don't count my rights or my preferences or my own agenda as the most important thing. And as a follower of Jesus, there is this humility, there is this posture that says, you know what? Like Jesus, like the mindset of Jesus, that there's times where I, I, I can, can and I'm called to lay aside those for the betterment of someone else. That who Jesus, even though he was in equality with God, did not count that as something to hold on to, but laid that aside humble themselves, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Paul would go on to say, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is who we follow. This is who we serve. And you know, for me, it's just in these moments where there's these conflicts, in these situations where it's easy to just want to do things our own way and make things sort of just better for my own self. Paul, I think, is inviting us to have this posture of Jesus. You know, for me in particular, I think what I've tried to do, and I'm, this is not like a perfect thing that I'm always constantly doing, but just very practically having passages like this be at the forefront of my mind throughout the day. Even to like begin my day, what I'll try to do is maybe have my Bible the night before already open to Philippians 2 right beside where I'm going to make my coffee in the morning. So the first thing that I'm seeing, the first thing that I'm coming in contact with is not my phone, is not social media, is not the media, but is Philippians 2. And as my coffee is being made, I'm thinking about Philippians 2. How can I have this mindset of, of looking to come underneath and to serve and to have the humility of Christ in my life? And not seek to achieve my own agenda or my own status, but have this posture of Jesus being inserted in my life. You know, I think about just our own sort of cultural moment, right? Where there's all conflict both on a cultural level, political level, and even on individual levels, on, in relationships, happening all over the place. You know, oftentimes I think about, okay, what are some of the ways that our culture right now is handling conflict? How are we doing that as a culture? Oftentimes it, it comes down to like, there's all these different ways where I think our culture tries to handle conflict. Whether it be just calling people out, like call out culture, right? Where it's just, oh, you're the bad ones, we're the good ones. We're the right ones, you're the wrong ones, and there's this distancing. There's no sense of relationship or engagement or hearing another person's opinion or another person's side is just simply calling people out. Just disregarding their humanity, disregarding that they are an image bearer of God and just this calling out of we're right, they're wrong. Or there's another way that sometimes we handle conflict is just simply having indifference or withdrawal, right? I think of like, you know, in Frozen with Elsa, right? Like let it go, I don't care what they say, let the storm rage on, let it go, right? Just completely ignore the situation and withdraw. But oftentimes, I think bitterness can then creep in when things aren't actually addressed. Or another way that sometimes I think conflict is handled in our culture that actually make things worse is just simply 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, good old-fashioned retaliation and revenge, right? You know, not like Liam Neeson revenge and like Taken or anything like that, or, you know, we're not as cool as Liam Neeson, right? But not revenge like that, but, oh, how can I get back at that person with that email or with that comment? How can I maybe just get a little bit of the upper hand and retaliate against and I think if we're honest, some of these ways actually make things worse and not better. And I think what Paul is inviting us to, to consider is how then can we not do some of these things, but show and demonstrate the humility of Jesus? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And demonstrate the Philippians 2 posture and humility of Jesus. Now, like we talked about last week, I'm not talking about there's clear instances of whether it's like abuse or racism or things like that where, please, come talk to us here as the leadership of Wellspring. We're not saying, you know, just ignore that, just, you know, be a doormat. Things like, I'm not saying anything like that at all. Remember, Paul is talking about the language he is using here is a, quote, everyday matter, right? Something that should just be able to be handled within the church as followers of Jesus, Something that we have the wisdom and the ability by the Spirit of God to show and demonstrate humility through this. So maybe a question just to consider for the week ahead is where is the Spirit inviting you? And how is the Spirit inviting you? How is the Spirit of God inviting you to demonstrate the humility and the posture of Jesus in moments of conflict in your everyday life. You know, and, and the way that question's phrased maybe is slightly misleading, because I'm not even just saying you individually need to come up with and discern that. Again, it's so important that there is counsel and community and feedback going on in these conversations. These are not easy things where, you know, I just can sit by myself oftentimes. I need the wisdom of other followers of Jesus to speak into these situations. And so if you're looking for that, if you need that, please come talk to myself or Tony or any of the elders or the staff. We would love to pray with you and be with you and discern how can you be faithful to the teachings of Jesus and how can you respond to how the Spirit is inviting you to faithfully demonstrate the humility and the love of Jesus in moments of conflict. Because I think we can all agree, right? Not to just beat this over and over again, but the way that our culture teaches us to handle conflict does not make things better. It just simply doesn't. And there's this deep longing and there's this deep hunger for humility and grace and forgiveness and embrace to happen that, that shines this beautiful light in a dark, dark world. And the more that we can demonstrate the forgiveness and the humility and the character of Christ in this broken world, the more Jesus is on display. The more Jesus is seen, and not my own agendas, and not my own preferences, and not my own wants. Jesus becomes the focal point of our lives, and not what we so just think we always want to have, and what we always think we want in our lives. Which leads me to my second sort of point here. Conflict can lead to restoration. Now, to maybe sort of illustrate this, uh, I want to talk a little bit about are two wonderful kids, Sienna and Kaysen. I think they, we should have a picture of them 
uh, on the screen here. Sienna and Kaysen. These are, are two little ones. Sienna's five. Kaysen is three. And they, these two are such a joy to parent. They're so much fun to hang out with and to talk about and to just play and be together with. And I'm kind of biased, right? But I think my kids are the best. They're awesome, right? There's so much. And a lot of you in this room, you know them. You get to play with them. You get to hang out with them. But here's the thing. As much as they, they smile and they laugh and they're so much fun to wrestle with and play all sorts of fun games with, I don't know if you know this, but kids fight, right? There's conflict, right? And we're, we're as parents, we're like in the thick of it going, how on earth do we teach a five-year-old and a three-year-old to like reconcile and forgive and to not like hurt each other all the time? Like how do we, how do you do that? And the thing is, it was the other day we were, we're all, it, this, 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 it doesn't have to be like the other day. This is like every day. But we have two kids, and oftentimes where the conflict comes from is we have two kids and only one of a certain item, Right? So whether it's like two kids and one stick or two kids and one toy, that is just like a recipe for some sort of conflict to happen, right? And so we have to like mitigate and like step in and like do our thing as parents and figure out like, you know, whose turn is it, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And so one thing that we've tried doing as, as parents, and I, myself in particular that I like to do, is that to the person who doesn't get like whatever that one thing is, I like to sing the, the song, You Can't Always Get What You Want, to that is it like from the Rolling Stones, right? So I, I seriously do this all the time. You can't always get what you want. And so we just sing that to them. And it's like this anthem in our house of just like, you just can't always get what you want, right? It's just a, a good old-fashioned lesson to learn at a really young age, right? But the thing is, is that as we're like trying to teach our kids conflict and how to handle conflict, and as much as it's, it's painful as parents to see our two little ones when, when, they're, when they're not getting along, it hurts. And that's not what you want for your kids. It's not what you want for them. And I, I know they're little, and, it, and it's, you know, it's a phase and all that, but it's still, it, it, it's, it's not fun to see. And one of the things that we've, we've tried to do, and again, we're not perfect parents by a long stretch. There's so much that we're relying on so many of you who've gone before us to help teach us and to show us. But one thing that we've learned from some wiser, older friends is how when their kids were younger and they were in seasons of conflict, what they would, would do is they would speak the truth of who they are over them. And they would say very specifically to their, to their little ones, and in our case, for Sienna and Kaysen, Sienna and Kaysen, you two are best friends. You two are best friends. And even though in that moment... They're not acting like it at all. The truth of who they are has so much power to shape them and form them so that their behavior and their actions begin to follow suit with the truth of who they are as our children. And so my prayer for our kids is that they would not just 
as five-year-olds and three-year-olds, but as 25-year-olds and 23-year-olds and as 45-year-olds and 43-year-olds, be best friends together. And speaking that identity over them has so much power in their lives. It's not just wishful thinking, but it's speaking the truth of who we see them as our children that begins to shape and transform them in their everyday life. And I think Paul is doing something very similar here in verse 11. Paul says, but such were. Such were some of you. Don't miss that simple point. It's a past tense statement. In the past, such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, so much of the Christian life is living into what has already been declared true of you. You know, I think as followers of Jesus, it's easy to forget the truth of who we are in Christ. We just go about our daily lives thinking, okay, I'm just going to, you know, make my coffee, go to work, play with the kids a little bit go for a walk in the evening, and we just forget who God has declared us to be despite of all our brokenness, despite of all the things we've done wrong. Paul says, but such were some of you. You were washed, you were cleansed in a world that wants to heap so much shame and guilt over us. Paul says, no, you have been washed of that. You were sanctified. That's just a fancy way of saying set apart. Set apart to be a part of God's family, to serve and represent God in this world. You were justified. Another fancy Bible word saying you have been declared right and you have been declared to be in the family of God. In Corinth, where they're trying to justify themselves as to who's right, who's wrong, who can, how can I elevate my own status? Paul says, no, you have been justified by the creator. You have already been declared right. So why are you bickering over who's right and who's wrong and who can gain more status over someone else? You have already been declared right in the sight of God. And you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, man, the whole idea of in the name of the Lord, that is a a huge biblical thing that runs all throughout Scripture. And for Paul to say that you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the reputation, in the honor of who Jesus is, that what is true of Jesus is now true of you if you are a follower of Jesus. The truth of who Jesus is, begins to permeate your own existence. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Not something that you've done to earn, not something you've done to achieve, but by the power of the Spirit working in and through your life. Not just to save you, but to empower you for everyday living. And this is the truth that Paul wants the followers of Jesus to sit in and to think about and to dwell on. Notice how Paul wants to pastor the church in Corinth through conflict. He wants to remind them of who they are in Christ and to speak that identity over them. Now, another layer to this. Especially in our American culture, we want to individualize this. All of the yous here in verse 11 are plural. You all have been justified. You all have been sanctified. You all have been washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It's a collective thing. It's a plural thing. It's a communal thing. 
Which think about it, in the moment of conflict between followers of Jesus, what is true of you in Christ is also true of that person that is driving you nuts. That person over there has been washed and sanctified and has been declared right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you come together in conflict, Paul is saying, you collectively are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. There's no room for looking down at other people. There's no room for thinking you have the superiority or the upper hand or you've got it all figured out. Paul says, no, no, no. By the grace of God, we have, as children of Jesus, as children of God, in the family of Jesus, we all come, not by what we've done or our own merit, by what he has done for us. You have been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, for the week ahead, I mean, there's not really like a practical do this in light of verse 11, other than sit and receive the identity that God has already declared to be true over you. Don't move past it. Don't leave this place going, okay, verse 11, check. Think about this. Meditate on this verse. How is the truth of what God has said about you motivate you, shape you, change you? How do you receive what God has already declared about us as a community and you in particular as well. Again, so much of what I think is hard about living the Christian life is that we just forget the very simple truth of who God has declared us to be. We forget that God, God's love for us is not something that we earn or not something that we can muster up for ourselves. And so what often happens is then we think we have like the superiority over someone else. We think that we're better than other people and we forget that no, no, all I have in Christ has been a gift. It's a gift that I receive. And so in moments of conflict, we then begin to think, okay, that person is the enemy. That person is the one that I gotta stick it to them. I love what Heather said earlier during worship. No, no. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I love what someone told me one time, if it has flesh and blood, you fight for it, not against it. And so with prayer and worship, and with humility, we come before recognizing, no, all that I have from Jesus is a gift. And I respond with gratefulness and thankfulness in that. With that, I wanna invite the worship team up. And as we just have a few moments to respond here in singing through worship, may we just, dwell upon and think upon the truth of who God has declared us to be in him. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can gain for ourselves, but remembering and reflecting the beauty of what God has done for us. And so to close, I want to end with just a quote from someone I appreciate. His name's Henry Nouwen, talking about the reality of who we are in Christ and how it's just so important to remember what God has said about this. He says this, in the midst of this painful reality, we must dare to reclaim the truth that we are God's beloved, even when the world does not love us. As long as we allow others to determine whether we, whether we are beloved or not, 
We are caught in the net of, of a suffocating world that accepts or rejects us on its own agenda of effectiveness and control. The great spiritual battle begins when we reclaim our status as God's beloved. Long before any human being saw us, we were seen by God's loving eyes. Long before anyone heard us cry or laugh, we are heard by our God who has all ears for us. Long before any person spoke to us in the world, we were spoken to by the voice of eternal love. And so God, as we are here in this place, or whether we're watching online, God, I pray that we would respond with gratitude and with humility, recognizing that who you have declared us to be, the work that you've done in our lives is, is a gift. God, I pray that that truth would motivate us to want to become more like you. We thank you, God, that you love us, yes, where we are, but God, you don't leave us there, that you are constantly in the process of transforming us, growing us, helping us to become more and more like you, Jesus. So God, I pray, I pray and I ask, God, that you would help all of us, each and every one of us in this room and any of us who are watching, that we would know, not just in our heads or as a fact, but just in a deep, deep way, God, that you are for us and not against us. And in those moments of conflict and of angst and of disagreement, God, may your humility and may your love just penetrate those situations. God, we need you. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.